0: Hello again. I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. So good to have you with me this evening. Two stories tonight by the legendary O. Henry, hugely popular author of some 300 short stories. O. Henry, of whom William Marion Reedy wrote, as a depictor of the life of New York's four million clubmen, fighters, thieves, policemen, tauts, shop girls, lady cashiers, hobos, actors, stenographers, and whatnot, O. Henry has no equal for keen insight into the beauties and meannesses of character or motive. In England, the journal John o. London* said, O. Henry was our greatest literary discovery during the Great War. He was medicinal. He distracted us from intolerable things. Here we go. One Thousand Dollars, by O. Henry One thousand dollars, repeated lawyer Tolman solemnly and severely, and here is the money. Young Gillian gave a decidedly amused laugh as he fingered the thin package of new fifty-dollar notes. It's such a confoundedly awkward amount, he explained genially to the lawyer. If it had been ten thousand, a fellow might wind up with a lot of fireworks and do himself credit. Even fifty dollars would have been less trouble. You heard the reading of your uncle's will, continued lawyer Tolman, professionally dry in his tones. I do not know if you paid much attention to its details. I must remind you of one. You are required to render to us an account of the manner of expenditure of this one thousand dollars as soon as you have disposed of it. The will stipulates that. I trust that you will so far comply with the late Mr. Gillian's wishes. You may depend upon it, said the young man politely. In spite of the extra expense it will entail, I may have to engage a secretary. I was never good at accounts. Gillian went to his club. There he hunted out one whom he called Old Bryson. Old Bryson was calm and forty and sequestered. He was in a corner reading a book and when he saw Gillian approaching, he sighed, laid down his book, and took off his glasses. "'Old Bryson, wake up,' said Gillian. "'I have a funny story to tell you.' "'I wish you would tell it to someone in the billiard-room,' said Old Bryson. "'You know how I hate your stories.' "'This is a better one than usual,' said Gillian, rolling a cigarette. "'And I'm going to tell it to you. "'It's too sad and too funny to go with the rattling of billiard-balls.' I've just come from my late uncle's firm of legal corsairs. He leaves me an even thousand dollars. Now, what can a man possibly do with a thousand dollars?' "'I thought,' said old Bryson, showing as much interest as a bee shows in a vinegar cruet, "'that the late Septimus Gillian was worth something like half a million. "'He was,' assented Gillian joyously, "'and that's where the joke comes in. "'He's left the whole cargo of doubloons to a microbe. "'That is, part of it goes to the man who invents a new bacillus, "'and the rest to establish a hospital for doing away with it again. "'There are one or two trifling bequests on the side. "'The butler and the housekeeper get a seal ring and ten dollars each. "'His nephew gets one thousand dollars. "'You've always had plenty of money to spend,' observed old Bryson. "'Tons,' said Gillian. "'Uncle was the fairy godmother as far as an allowance was concerned.' "'Any other heirs?' asked old Bryson. "'None.' "'Gillian frowned at his cigarette, and kicked the upholstered leather of a divan uneasily. "'There is a Miss Hayden, a ward of my uncle, who lived in his house. "'She's a quiet thing, musical. "'The daughter of somebody who was unlucky enough to be his friend. "'Oh, I forgot to say that she was in on the seal-ring and ten-dollar joke, too. "'I wish I had been.' THEN I COULD HAVE HAD TWO BOTTLES OF BRUTE, TIPPED THE WAITER WITH a RING, AND HAD THE WHOLE BUSINESS OFF MY HANDS. DON'T BE SUPERIOR IN INSULTING, OLD BRYSON. TELL ME WHAT A FELLOW CAN DO WITH A THOUSAND DOLLARS." OLD BRYSON RUBBED HIS GLASSES AND SMILED, AND WHEN OLD BRYSON SMILED, GILLIAN KNEW THAT HE INTENDED TO BE MORE OFFENSIVE THAN EVER. A THOUSAND DOLLARS, HE SAID, MEANS MUCH OR LITTLE. One man may buy a happy home with it and laugh at Rockefeller, another could send his wife south with it and save her life. A thousand dollars would buy pure milk for one hundred babies during June, July, and August, and save fifty of their lives. You could count upon a half-hour's diversion with it at Faro in one of the fortified art galleries. It would furnish an education to an ambitious boy. I am told that a genuine corot was secured for that amount in an auction-room yesterday. You could move to a New Hampshire town and live respectably two years on it. You could rent Madison Square Garden for one evening with it, and lecture your audience, if you should have one, on the precariousness of the profession of heir-presumptive. "'People might like you, old Bryson,' said Gillian, always unruffled, "'if you wouldn't moralize.' I asked you to tell me what I could do with a thousand dollars. "'You!' said Bryson with a gentle laugh. "'Why, Bobby Gillian, there's only one logical thing you could do. You can go buy Miss Lottelauriere a diamond pendant with the money, and then take yourself off to Idaho and inflict your presence upon a ranch. I advise a sheep ranch, as I have a particular dislike for sheep.' "'Thanks!' said Gillian, rising, I thought I could depend upon you, old Bryson. You've hit on the very scheme. I wanted to chuck the money in a lump, for I've got to turn in an account for it, and I hate itemizing. Gillian phoned for a cab, and said to the driver, The stage entrance of the Columbine Theatre. Miss Lotta Laurier was assisting nature with a powder-puff, almost ready for her call at a crowded matinee, when her dresser mentioned the name of Mr. Gillian. "'Let it in,' said Miss Laurier. "'Now, what is it, Bobby? I'm going on in two minutes.' "'Rabbit-foot your right ear a little,' suggested Gillian, critically. "'That's better. It won't take two minutes for me. What do you say to a little thing in the pendant-line? I can stand three ciphers with a figure-one in front of them.' "'Oh, just as you say,' carolled Miss Laurier. "'My right love, Adams. Say, Bobby—' Did you see that necklace Della Stacy had on the other night? Twenty-two hundred dollars it cost at Tiffany's. But, of course, uh, pull my sash a little to the left, Adams. Miss Laurier for the opening chorus, cried the callboy without. Gillian strolled out to where his cab was waiting. What would you do with a thousand dollars if you had it? He asked the driver. Open a saloon, said the cabby promptly and huskily. I know a place I could take money in with both hands. It's a four story brick on a corner. I've got it figured out. Second story, chinks and chop suey. Third floor, manicures and foreign missions. Fourth floor, pool room. If you was thinking of putting up the cap Oh, no, said Gillian. I merely asked from curiosity. I take you by the hour. Drive till I tell you to stop. Eight blocks down Broadway, Gillian poked up the trap with his cane and got out. A blind man sat upon a stool on the sidewalk, selling pencils. Gillian went out and stood before him. "'Excuse me,' he said, "'but would you mind telling me what you would do if you had a thousand dollars?' "'You got out of that cab that just drove up, didn't you?' asked the blind man. "'I did,' said Gillian. "'I guess you are all right,' said the pencil dealer, "'to ride in a cab by daylight. "'Take a look at that, if you like.' He drew a small book from his coat pocket and held it out. Gillian opened it and saw that it was a bank deposit book. It showed a balance of $1,785 to the blind man's credit. Gillian returned the book and got into the cab. "'I forgot something,' he said. "'You may drive to the law office of Tolman and Sharp on Broadway.' "'Lawyer Tolman looked at him hostily and inquiringly through his gold-rimmed glasses. "'I beg your pardon,' said Gillian cheerfully, "'but may I ask you a question? It is not an impertinent one, I hope. "'Was Miss Hayden left anything by my uncle's will besides the ring and the ten dollars?' "'Nothing,' said Mr. Tolman. "'I thank you very much, sir,' said Gillian, and on he went to his cab. He gave the driver the address of his late uncle's home.' "'Miss Hayden was writing letters in the library. "'She was small and slender and clothed in black. "'But you would have noticed her eyes. "'Gillian drifted in with his air of regarding the world as inconsequent. "'I've just come from old Tolman's,' he explained. "'They've been going over the papers down there. "'They found a—' "'Gillian searched his memory for a legal term. "'They found an amendment or a postscript or something to the will.' IT SEEMED THAT THE OLD BOY LOOSENED UP A LITTLE ON SECOND THOUGHTS AND WILLED YOU A THOUSAND DOLLARS. I WAS DRIVING UP THIS WAY, AND TOLMAN ASKED ME TO BRING YOU THE MONEY. HERE IT IS. YOU'D BETTER COUNT IT TO SEE IF IT'S RIGHT. GILLIAN LAID THE MONEY BESIDE HER HAND ON THE DESK. Miss HAYDEN TURNED WHITE. OH! SHE SAID, AND AGAIN, OH! GILLIAN HALF TURNED AND LOOKED OUT THE WINDOW. "'I suppose, of course,' he said in a low voice, "'that you know I love you.' "'I am sorry,' said Miss Hayden, taking up her money. "'There is no use?' asked Gillian, almost light-heartedly. "'I'm sorry,' she said again. "'May I write a note?' asked Gillian, with a smile. He seated himself at the big library table. She supplied him with paper and pen, and then went back to her secretaire. Gillian made out his account of his expenditure of the $1,000 in these words, Paid by the black sheep Robert Gillian $1,000 on account of the eternal happiness owed by heaven to the best and dearest woman on earth. Gillian slipped his writing into an envelope, bowed, and went his way. His cab stopped again at the offices of Tolman and Sharp. I have expended the thousand dollars, he said cheerily to Tolman of the Gold Glasses, and I have come to render account of it as I agreed. There is quite a feeling of summer in the air, do you not think so, Mr. Tolman? He tossed a white envelope on the lawyer's table. You will find there a memorandum, sir, of the modus operandi of the vanishing of the dollars. Without touching the envelope, Mr. Tolman went to a door and called his partner, Sharp. Together they explored the caverns of an immense safe. Forth they dragged, as trophy of their search, a big envelope sealed with wax. This they forcibly invaded and wagged their venerable heads together over its contents. Then Tolman became spokesman. "'Mr. Gillian,' he said formally, "'there was a codicil to your uncle's will. "'It was entrusted to us privately,' with instructions that it not be opened until you had furnished us with a full account of your handling of the thousand-dollar bequest of the will. As you have fulfilled the conditions, my partner and I have read the codicil. I do not wish to encumber your understanding with this legal phraseology, but I will acquaint you with the spirit of its contents." "'In the event that your disposition of the one thousand dollars demonstrates that you possess any of the qualifications that deserve reward, much benefit will accrue to you. Mr. Sharp and I are named as the judges, and I assure you that we will do our duty strictly according to justice, with liberality. We are not at all unfavorably disposed toward you, Mr. Gillian, but let us return to the letter of the codicil.' If your disposal of the money in question has been prudent, wise, or unselfish, it is in our power to hand over to you bonds to the value of fifty thousand dollars, which have been placed in our hands for that purpose. But if, as our client the late Mr. Gillian explicitly provides, you have used this money as you have money in the past, I quote the late Mr. Gillian, in reprehensible dissipation among disreputable associates, the fifty thousand dollars is to be paid to miriam Hayden ward of the late mister Gillian without delay. Now, mister Gillian, mister Sharp and I will examine your account in regard to the one thousand dollars. You submit it in writing, I believe. I hope you will repose confidence in our decision. mister Tolman reached for the envelope. Gillian was a little the quicker in taking it up. He tore the account and its cover leisurely into strips and dropped them into his pocket. "'It's all right,' he said, smilingly. "'There isn't a bit of need to bother you with this. I don't suppose you'd understand these itemized bets anyway. I lost the thousand dollars on the races. Good day to you, gentlemen.' Coleman and Sharp shook their heads mournfully at each other when Gillian left, for they heard him whistling gaily in the hallway as he waited for the elevator. Our second story is called While the Auto Waits. Promptly at the beginning of twilight came again to that quiet corner of that quiet small park the girl in gray. She sat upon a bench and read a book, for there was yet to come a half hour in which print could be accomplished. To repeat, her dress was gray and plain enough to mask its impeccancy of style and fit. A large meshed veil imprisoned her turban hat and a face that shone through it with a calm and unconscious beauty. She had come there at the same hour on the day previous and on the day before that, and there was one who knew it. The young man who knew it hovered near, relying upon burnt sacrifices to the great Joss luck. His piety was rewarded, for, in turning a page, her book slipped from her fingers and bounded from the bench a full yard away. The young man pounced upon it with instant avidity, returning it to its owner with that air that seems to flourish in parks and public places, a compound of gallantry and hope tempered with respect for the policeman on the beat. In a pleasant voice he risked an inconsequent remark upon the weather, that introductory topic responsible for so much of the world's unhappiness, and stood poised for a moment, awaiting his fate. The girl looked him over leisurely, at his ordinary, neat dress, and his features distinguished by nothing particular in the way of expression. You may sit down if you like, she said in a full, deliberate contralto. Really, I would like to have you do so. The light is too bad for reading. I would prefer to talk. The vassal of luck slid upon the seat by her side with complaisance. Do you know, he said, speaking the formula with which park chairmen open their meetings, that you are quite the stunningest girl I have seen in a long time. I had my eye on you yesterday. Didn't know somebody was bowled over by those pretty lamps of yours, did you, honeysuckle? Whoever you are, said the girl in icy tones, you must remember that I am a lady. I will excuse the remark you have just made, because the mistake was, doubtless, not an unnatural one, in your circle. I asked you to sit down. If the invitation must constitute me your honeysuckle, consider it withdrawn." "'I earnestly beg your pardon,' pleaded the young man. His expression of satisfaction had changed to one of penitence and humility. "'It was my fault, you know. I mean, there are girls in parks, you know. That is, of course, you don't know. But—' "'Abandon the subject, if you please. Of course I know. Now, tell me about these people passing and crowding each way along these paths. Where are they going? Why do they hurry so? Are they happy?' The young man had promptly abandoned his air of coquetry. His cue was now for a waiting part. He could not guess the role he would be expected to play. "'It is interesting to watch them,' he replied, postulating her mood. "'It is the wonderful drama of life. Some are going to supper, and some to, um, other places. One wonders what their histories are.' "'I do not,' said the girl. "'I am not so inquisitive.' I come here to sit because here only can I be near the great, common, throbbing heart of humanity. My part in life is cast where its beats are never felt. Can you surmise why I spoke to you, Mr. um—' supplied the young man. Then he looked eager and hopeful. "'No,' said the girl, holding up a slender finger and smiling slightly. "'You would recognize it immediately.' It is impossible to keep one's name out of print, or even one's portrait. This veil and this hat of my maid furnish me with an incog. You should have seen the chauffeur stare at it when he thought I did not see. Candidly, there are five or six names that belong in the Holy of Holies, and mine, by the accident of birth, is one of them. I spoke to you, Mr. Stackinpot. Uh, Parkinstacker, corrected the young man modestly. Mr. Parkenstacker, because I wanted to talk for once with a natural man, one unspoiled by the despicable gloss of wealth and supposed social superiority. Oh, you do not know how weary I am of it, money, 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 and of the men who surround me, dancing like little marionettes, all cut by the same pattern. I am sick of pleasure, of jewels, of travel, of society, of luxuries of all kinds.' "'I always had an idea,' ventured the young man, hesitatingly, "'that money must be a pretty good thing. A competence is to be desired, but when you have so many millions that—' she concluded the sentence with a gesture of despair. "'It is the monotony of it,' she continued, "'that palls. drives dinners, theatres, balls, suppers—' with the gliding of superfluous wealth over it all sometimes the very tinkle of the ice in my champagne glass nearly drives me mad mr parkinsacker looked ingenuously interested i have always liked he said to read and hear about the ways of wealthy and fashionable folks i suppose i am a bit of a snob but i like to have my information accurate now I had formed the opinion that champagne is cooled in the bottle and not by placing ice in the glass. The girl gave a musical laugh of genuine amusement. (laughs) You should know, she explained, in an indulgent tone, that we of the non-useful class depend for our amusement upon departure from precedent. Just now it is a fad to put ice in champagne.' The idea was originated by a visiting prince of Tartary while dining at the Waldorf. It will soon give way to some other whim, just as at a dinner-party this week on Madison Avenue a green kid glove was laid by the plate of each guest to be put on and used while eating olives. "'I see,' admitted the young man humbly. "'These special diversions of the inner circle do not become familiar to the common public. "'Sometimes,' continued the girl, Acknowledging his confession of error by a slight bow, I have thought that if I ever should love a man it would be one of lowly station, one who is a worker and not a drone. But doubtless the claims of caste and wealth will prove stronger than my inclination. Just now I am besieged by two. One is a grand duke of a German principality. I think he has, or has had, a wife, somewhere driven mad by his intemperance and cruelty. The other is an English marquis, so cold and mercenary that I even prefer the diabolism of the duke. What is it that impels me to tell you these things, Mr. Parkenstacker? Parkenstacker, breathed the young man. Indeed, you cannot know how much I appreciate your confidences. The girl contemplated him with the calm, impersonal regard that befitted the difference in their stations— what is your line of business, Mr. Parkinstacker? she asked. A oh, very humble one, but I hope to rise in the world. Were you really in earnest when you said that you could love a man of lowly position? Indeed I was. But I said might. There is the Grand Duke and the Marquis, you know. Yes, no calling can be too humble were the man what I wish him to be. I work, declared Mr. Parkinstacker, in a restaurant. The girl shrank slightly. "'Not as a waiter,' she said a little imploringly. "'Labor is noble, but personal attendance, you know, valets, and—' "'I am not a waiter. I am cashier in—' On the street they faced that bounded the opposite side of the park was the brilliant electric sign, "'Restaurant. I am cashier in that restaurant you see there.' The girl consulted a tiny watch set in a bracelet of rich design upon her left wrist, and rose hurriedly. She thrust her book into a glittering reticule suspended from her waist, for which, however, the book was too large. "'Why are you not at work?' she asked. "'I am on the night turn,' said the young man. "'It is yet an hour before my period begins. May I not hope to see you again?' "'I do not know. Perhaps.' but the whim may not seize me again. I must go quickly now. There is a dinner and a box at the play, and, oh, the same old round. Perhaps you noticed an automobile at the upper corner of the park as you came, one with a white body. And red running gear? asked the young man, knitting his brows reflectively. Yes, I always come in that. Pierre waits for me there. He supposes me to be shopping in the department store across the square. "'conceive of the bondage of the life "'wherein we must deceive even our chauffeurs.' "'Good-night.' "'But it is dark now,' said Mr. Parkinstacker, "'and the park is full of rude men. "'May I not walk?' "'If you have the slightest regard for my wishes,' "'said the girl firmly, "'you will remain at this bench for ten minutes after I have left. "'I do not mean to accuse you, "'but you are probably aware that autos generally bear the monogram of their owner. "'Again. "'Good-night.' Swift and stately, she moved away through the dusk. The young man watched her graceful form as she reached the pavement at the park's edge and turned up along it toward the corner where stood the automobile. Then he treacherously and unhesitatingly began to dodge and skim among the park trees and shrubbery in a course parallel to her route, keeping her well in sight. When she reached the corner, she turned her head to glance at the motor car, and then passed it, continuing on across the street. Sheltered behind a convenient standing cab, the young man followed her movements closely with his eyes. Passing down the sidewalk of the street opposite the park, she entered the restaurant with the blazing sign. The place was one of those frankly glaring establishments, all white paint and glass, one may dine cheaply and conspicuously. The girl penetrated the restaurant to some retreat at its rear whence she quickly emerged without her hat and veil. The cashier's desk was well to the front. A red-haired girl on the stool climbed down, glancing pointedly at the clock as she did so. The girl in gray mounted in her place. The young man thrust his hands into his pockets and walked slowly back along the sidewalk. At the corner his foot struck a small paper-covered volume lying there, sending it sliding to the edge of the turf. By its picturesque cover he recognized it as the book the girl had been reading. He picked it up carelessly and saw that its title was New Arabian Nights, the author being of the name of Stevenson. He dropped it again upon the grass, and lounged, irresolute, for a minute. Then he stepped into the automobile, reclined upon the cushions, and said two words to the chauffeur, ''Club, Henri!'' You've been listening to One Thousand Dollars and While the Auto Waits by O. Henry. Did he surprise you again? (laughs) He did me on first reading. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. Let me know what stories or authors you would like to hear. Drop me a line, if you will, at rfigge, that's R-F as in Frank, I-G-G-E, at worcester.edu. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, all the best. Music.